Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, this is episode 137 of the Leading Learning Podcast. And it features a conversation with Dr. Bernard Bull, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at Concordia University. His books include What Really Matters, 10 Critical Issues in Contemporary Education, and Adventures in Self-Directed Learning, and he blogs regularly. He's also a keynote speaker and consultant on educational innovation, futures in education, and the intersection of education and digital culture. But before diving into this really interesting conversation with Bernard, we want to acknowledge our sponsor for the second quarter of 2018. Our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, a, co- a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems, and the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute a review and you get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already more than 100 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. For details, check out ReviewMyLMS.com. For our resource for this episode, we're going to point you to some of Bernard's writings, specifically a brief piece called How to Predict Educational Trends, It Doesn't Happen Overnight. Bernard's been focused on predicting education trends, and this piece offers a brief look at 15 factors that are valuable when you are studying trends likely to shape and change education over time. To get access, just visit the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 137. Now, Salisa, I've gotten inklings of this conversation from uh, our discussions over the, the, the past uh, couple of weeks, but I'm, I'm wondering what should listeners be looking forward to out of this conversation with Bernard? Well, I, you know, I think one of the, the best parts of the conversation um, really is just how thoughtful Bernard is. And by thoughtful, I mean, not only is he tracking important issues and trends, and we specifically get into things like the future of credentials, the impact of artificial intelligence on learning and data analytics, but he's also honestly interested in understanding the issues and trends. So he's thoughtful in the sense of trying to go deep and see implications and tease out what it all means for us as providers of learning and education, and also for us as lifelong learners ourselves. Well, definitely fertile ground for conversation there, and I'm looking really forward to hearing what Bernard has to say. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll this interview with Bernard Bull. Hello out there. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Bernard Bull. Bernard serves 
Currently, as Vice Provost of Curriculum and Academic Innovation, Chief Innovation Officer, and Associate Professor of Education at Concordia University in Wisconsin and Ann Arbor, Michigan, he writes, his books include What Really Matters, 10 Critical Issues in Contemporary Education, and Adventures in Self-Directed Learning. He blogs regularly. He's the founder and CEO of Birdhouse Learning Labs, a company on a quest to amplify rich, inspiring education through products, experimentation, prototyping, and competitions. He's the force and voice behind the Moonshot EDU show, a podcast that explores the frontiers and futures in education. And he's a keynote speaker and consultant on educational innovation, futures in education, and the intersection of education and digital culture. Bernard, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, so to start us off, I want to give you the chance to say more about your background and interests. You're involved in so much. I mean, all of it's related, but um, you have a lot going on. And so I'd like for you to sort of add as you see fit. What else would you have listeners know about yourself and your work? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, I love education. I think that it has a, a ton of implications for society, far beyond what we even think about most of the time. And somehow I've managed to spend a good 20 plus years in this field. And it's incredible and amazing. And I'm so encouraged by the, the great work that's happening out there. But I'm also inspired to take on some of what I call the educational dragons and do a little dragon slaying. Um, so <laughs> I call myself an educational dreamer aspiring difference maker and occasional discontent. That's sort of how I see myself. Excellent. Okay. Well, and hopefully we'll, we'll cover what some of those dragons are during our conversation. Um, and where I wanted to start is, is I know that one of the things you're thinking about is the future of credentials and, and in society. So sort of the implications, you know, largely, as you were saying, not just limited in in the education space. And, um, and in fact, it was through some of your writing about the future of credentials that I came across your work. Um, and so I know this is a big question, but I, I want to start by asking you, what do you see as the affordances and limitations of current credentials? Yeah, that's a huge one. So I'm actually working on a book that may never actually get published. I don't know. We'll see. But I like to write even if it doesn't get published. I'd say probably three-fourths of what I write never sees the light of day. And the, the name of the book is called, uh, if it ever does uh, get published, is going to be called The Lincoln Test. And um, it's based upon this idea of Abraham Lincoln, who was an incredibly well-educated individual, but just not very well-credentialed. Right? He didn't go through the, the formal structures of schooling as we think of it today. Um, he passed the bar somewhere along the way, but uh, didn't go to formal law school. And um, he certainly had a few, a few titles that many of us know about him <laughs> along the way, right? But, uh, but he didn't necessarily have this big, long line of credentials. So if you were to go into Abraham Lincoln's office, you would not see on the walls the uh, diplomas that are supposed to be signifiers of his competence for whatever position he's filling at a given time. And, um, and so that, that's really the premise of the book, is that... Um, a more humane way of approaching approaching uh, connecting people with organizations and roles and possibilities is for us to find better ways to help us do do sort of a matchmaking. It's it's so right now credentials serve as as a, a sort of a signaling and and I actually have a podcast coming up 
where uh, a more controversial figure talks about this. Brian Kaplan, he's the author of uh, uh, of um, The End of Education. It's about why the education system is a waste of time and money, in his opinion. And I don't necessarily align entirely with Brian Kaplan, but his argument is that we need to get back to the 1970s level of college degrees, that we actually need fewer college degrees if we want to move the needle on access and opportunity. Um, and so where I agree with him, not necessarily uh, on that, but where I agree with him is sort of the spirit of his comment, which is that right now what we've done is we've turned, especially like the college degree and the diploma, into sort of the minimum criteria for even applying for jobs. But when you actually do uh, an analysis of the tasks that are required in order to complete some of these jobs, a college degree is not the only way to become competent. So one of my biggest critiques of the way we use credentials right now is we use them as a sort of signal that someone must be ready or competent, but that's not, it's not entirely accurate. And we're excluding people from opportunities and possibilities unintentionally. Um, so that's really my biggest critique of, uh, of, of sort of credentials as they play out in a lot of society today. Now, the affordances, though, are, you know, we're coming to a time when we're exploring micro-credentials and digital badges and different uh, algorithmic tools that help people connect. So sort of the match.com of other spaces where people can connect around shared interests and abilities, but it's not just for dating. It could be for employment or people with shared interests around social movements and the like. And, and I think that uh, there could be some incredible possibilities for creating more uh, humane, transparent, equitable ways of matchmaking and connecting, ones that are much, much more effective and, and accurate than, than the credentials as we've thought of them in the past. I had not connected credentials with dating before, so thank you for that. <laughs> but no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that word that you used at least twice there, that humane, which is, um, I think, a, a great point that it really is at some level sort of it's about the the individuals and, and as you were saying, matchmaking, finding that right role for them and matching up their skills um, with what needs to be done in organizations. Um, and, and so it, it sounds like then you see some potential uh, in things like the digital badges and the, the micro, uh, the, the digital badges, micro credentials in terms of helping to kind of facilitate some of that matchmaking. I mean, is that kind of the the brightest yeah. air spot for the future of credentials that you see? I, I do. And, and this is a little bit controversial. So I've been pretty active in the open badge and digital badge movement almost since its beginning. I came in about six to 12 months after sort of its birth and, and became a pretty strong advocate. I've, I've probably written more informal articles than almost anyone out there, over 100 plus um, different articles as I sort of thought out loud about the benefits and the limitations of badges. And I actually think that badges are what I call a transitional technology, in, in meaning that um, they're helping us get to where we need to be, but eventually we may not actually use badges per se. Um, and, and here's so, so what I mean by that is um, a digital badge it has all of this metadata attached to it. So it's not just the badge. Like when you get a diploma and you put it on your wall, um, it may say who it came from. It may have the signature of the president or the provost at that university, and it may have like the level of degree and and then some level of detail about what it was for. So it might say Bachelor of Science in Mathematics. 
but it doesn't tell you anything else, right? Well, the, these new credentials have much richer data. It can talk about what you had to do in order to earn that credential. It can give you, it could have different kinds of, of references or recommendations from people associated with it. It could have a, a really rich collection of, of uh, narrative content and other kinds of data. And so what makes that so powerful from that kind of match.com dating description is if you have that much data attached to a credential, that's something that can be mined. And if you can mine it, then you can match people on the basis of sort of key terms and phrases and words. That's really powerful. It has some potential downsides to it, but I see some great possibilities as well. When I've always been excited about the potential for there to actually be some portfolio work that that is represented in those badges too. So it is it's not just what kind of um, requirements everyone who got the badge went through, but you know specifically what did this individual do? You know when it came time to write you know a, a paper or produce a project around it and to actually include right. some of that. I think that's really exciting and it would be powerful uh, to help with that matchmaking as well. It is, and the portfolio is a really rich source of data as well. Here's where I think we we get lost in the portfolio conversation in my mind is um, most employers are not going to search through 30 or 50 Mm. pages of a portfolio, right? Um, They're making decisions much faster than that, um, for better or for worse. And and I feel like I need to deal with that reality. And that's where the kind of algorithmic matching comes in. So is there a way to sort of raise the portfolios to the top that have keywords and phrases that really resonate with what I need and what I'm looking for and and the like? Excellent. Well, so maybe we'll we'll leave credentials alone for a little bit because I know that one of the other areas where you're spending time thinking is around um, the implications and limitations and affordances of uh, AI and the robotic movement. And so I would love to hear your current thoughts on uh, artificial intelligence and how learners learn and how organizations that uh, serve learners should act sort of in this age of uh, AI and, and the robotic movement? Yeah, I would say in terms of the many areas that I'm exploring and I'm curious about, that artificial intelligence is one that probably reaches one of the higher levels of potential impact in society over the next 20, 25 years. But it's also, candidly, one of the areas where I feel like I have the most to learn. Mm. Like it's it's just there's so much there. And the more I dive into it, the more complicated it gets. And um, and so it's still kind of messy in my mind. So I want to preface anything I say with that. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I can certainly say that and this is this is something that we can find in hundreds of articles. People are writing about this and talking about it is is obviously we are reaching a point where the capabilities of our technologies, our technologies are increasingly becoming capable of replacing tasks that were formerly done by people. And that's going to continue to be disruptive in the way that we think about life and the way that we think about work. And one of the most important tasks, I believe, of of someone who's trying to prepare to thrive in this new context is just to be persistently engaged with conversations about this very thing. How do we, what are the, what are the skills, what's the knowledge, what are the abilities that are most central to being human, that are least likely to be replaced by these other technologies? How do we best relate to these different technologies and work with and alongside them? Um, 
without letting them kind of take over and reshape us in their image, right? Um, where the technologies just kind of turn us into uh, acting like other technologies and mm. we function like machines and, and less like humans. Like those are the kinds of questions that intrigue me and I think are really important. Now, I believe that probably, you know, Bill Gates in, um, in one of his books, he wrote that too many people um, – I forget exactly. I'm going to butcher the quote, but too many people people um, overestimate the change, the, the amount of change that's going to happen in the next few years, but they underestimate the amount of change that will happen in the next decade. And um, and I don't know where we are with AI, like how quickly it's going to to change. I think there's a good possibility that we're 20 years out from the really scary stuff, what some people might consider scary. But it's so massive and so significant that we have to start talking and thinking about it now if we're going to be ready for it in 20 years. And besides, there's a good chance that it could be happening in the next two to four years, and I'm completely off on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, you have a, a plus or minus margin of error of, you know, 25 years in there somewhere. That's right. So, um Well, so again, we'll, we'll jump topics a little bit. Um, and I know that... Um, learning data and data analytics is again another area of interest for you and that you're thinking about things like um, you know how do we promote a deeper consideration and dialogue about the real benefits and real downsides to learning analytics and big data and how measuring can change or affirm values and priorities and so I feel like the potential benefits of learning analytics um, get touted a lot so I I would love to hear you talk about, you know, what do you see as the downsides to, to learning analytics? Yeah, so I just had a, a really great interview with uh, Tim Rinnick um, about student success. He's over at Georgia State University, and Georgia State is, is probably the university who's touted as doing some of the most incredible work around using analytics to bridge achievement gaps. So for those who don't know, Georgia State has managed to take the population of students who are coming in, and they're coming from families in the lowest 25% of household income in the nation. And they've bridged the gap, the achievement gap, between that population and students coming into their school who come from families in the top 25% of household incomes. And that is just incredible. That's I mean, great, yeah. you know, that kind of work is phenomenal. And um, and Tim is, is an intriguing guy because he's actually, I believe, a philosopher by trade, if I remember from the interview. Like, he's, his PhD is in philosophy, but he comes in and becomes this admission and student success guru at the school, like the VP of admission and student success. Um, and, and he becomes a real champion around, around data. So um, the idea is they have around 800 data points that they have tied to uh, having a, a, um, a measure of predictability for student success. So 800 data points that indicate whether or not students are likely to persist or not in their school, right? So that's really cool. Now, um, Here's where the downside can come in. And they actually, I think, are being quite deliberate about not giving into this downside. So say we get all of this really rich data and we have this ability to predict. The danger is the minority report danger. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but some listeners have maybe seen the movie, where essentially it's some futuristic world where people have become so good at predicting that they can predict that someone's going to commit a crime before they even do it. And so they go and they arrest them before they actually commit the crime. Right? Right. 
Um, and that's one of the dangers, obviously not that far, but the danger is that we start taking agency away from people, that we, we predict that the student is going to fail, and so we guide them away from taking risks and challenges. And yet that's part of what helps us grow is experiencing failure and persisting through it and overcoming it, right? So there's a balance there. And, and Georgia State, for example, they don't force students most of their interventions are not like forcing students. They, you know, they don't go to them always and say, you have a 97% chance of failing this class. We forbid you from signing up for it. <laughs> but what they will do is say, hey, we have some data points. And among the people with your profile, you know, with, with uh, your math scores or whatever, uh, the level of success is, is not very encouraging if you go into this class right now as you are. But we also have some evidence that says if you do this, 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 and this, you can increase your chance of success a great deal, mm. right? So that kind of that's a qualitative difference that I think is really important, and I don't think everyone is thinking about it in that way. I think some people are just jumping into the data and they're making the call for people. So that's one risk. The other risk that I think is a limitation that I think we have to be really cautious about is the level of transparency with which we use these data. Uh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's a great book out called Weapons of Math Destruction that shares a couple of wonderful case studies uh, that illustrate this. But generally, the risk is we have these kind of, of tools and predictive analytics, and this can get into kind of algorithms that uh, help us to determine who's more likely to do this or this or that or whatever it might be or, or might be at risk. And we start using that for decisions about applying like in school, financial aid or, or who's qualified for a particular job or whatever else it might be. And those algorithms are, are created by people and they're flawed. I mean, they, they have biases, right? Um, and so those data and the way that we create these data, if we're not transparent about how we created them and how we're using them, I mean, even when we're transparent, there can be some real risks of, of harmful biases. But, um, but there can be some, some real havoc wreaked in society and in people's lives um, that, uh, you know, my chance of uh, my, my opportunities can be diminished just because someone created a bad algorithm. And, and that's a little bit scary and something I think we need to be thinking about carefully and intentionally and persistently. Mm. That's excellent points. And then, you know, you were talking about using that, that the algorithm with the the matchmaking and the that use within credentials. And so, yeah, it seems like the just the potential uses of algorithms and then the potential downsides, I guess, are going to probably just expand over the coming years. And so proceeding right. with care seems uh, very important. Yeah. And I, I like the way you said that proceeding with care, because I actually started my study of technology and education as a kind of neo-Luddite, a pretty severe critic of technology. In fact, I cut my teeth studying a lot of the early research and philosophers on the downside of technology and the inverse impact. In fact, my first presentation at an ed conference ever was on the adverse impact of technology, and it was at an ed tech conference. And I had like, this line of software vendors in the back of the room grimacing at me, waiting for the Q&A to try to tear me apart. And it was a great conversation. Um, but the funny part? I'm at an ed tech conference and they put me in the top floor in a corner room that had space for about 20 people because they thought no one would be interested. The room was jam packed all the way out into the hallway. I must have had 70 people lined up in this in this little room to talk about it. So that shows that um, 
that that while you know while people are really excited about technology, um, there there's a healthy awareness that we need to be, need to be thinking about the risks. Mm-hmm. What I like about your statement though is, I'm no longer the person trying to just stop everything. I'm an advocate of technology as much as anyone you can find, but I'm also a critic of it as much as anyone can you you can find. Um, and, and I think having those together, that little civil war inside of our minds is, is a healthy way of approaching it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's one thing I've really admired about what I know about your work is that I think you do a really good job of um, sort of that, that thinking out loud. You're, you're writing and you're thinking through things and it's not like you're it doesn't seem to me that, you know, you're approaching anything with a particular agenda. You're honestly there to try and um, learn, look at the data and evidence and research and and see what it means and um, the implications for us as humans and um, and what how we can interact. So I, I've really appreciated that about your work. Thank you. That's like a huge compliment for me because that's exactly what I try to be and represent in my work. That's what I hope shows up. Well, and so we'll turn to another area where you've done some of that sort of, you know, thinking out loud and, and sharing, um, you know, thoughts on, on these different topics we've been talking about, like AI and credentials and data analytics. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, is sort of the uh, skills gap in workforce development. And so I, I know, at least in sort of the circles I run in, that there's been kind of growing discussion uh, about that gap between skills and knowledge that employers need and those that typical college graduates um, possess. And so, you know, first, do you see that skills gap and workforce um, development as important issues? And then if you do, you know, what role do you think um, learning businesses, and so I'm thinking about our listeners here, so not those that are in undergraduate or graduate programs or working in those, but those that are behind continuing ed programs or associations or training companies or edupreneurs, what role can or should learning businesses like those play in addressing that skills gap and workforce development issue? Yeah. So the, the skills gap is, is obviously real. Um, and I, and I like to keep it broad though. Uh, so, so, oh, there's so many different ways to go here. I'm trying to focus my thoughts. Um, cause I could, I could really babble on about this one, but I want to say something substantive that might be meaningful to the listeners as well. So let me see if I can narrow this down to a couple of, of trains of thought. Um, one of them is obviously the skills gap is a real pain point. I mean, I know here in the state of Wisconsin where I reside, there are companies that have literally a thousand vacancies, unfilled positions annually. Mm. Um, and they're just, they can't find the talent for those positions. Right. Um, so that's a real thing. I believe that some companies lack creativity in how they're trying to address this problem. Um, and I'm not trying to put all the blame on them, but it's that they are, as I mentioned before, sometimes posting the job in such a way that they're not getting access to all of the possible talent. Now, I realize this is this is a, a realistic thing. I'm a company. I have a thousand positions that I can't fill. So, But I want to post it as minimum of a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree required. But I really believe that it's important for those companies to, to do some honest tax task analyses and actually find out what is necessary to do that job. And actually these entrepreneurs and other companies, like that's actually a really great uh, service that could be provided for companies is to help companies figure out what do I actually need 
what kind of talent do I need? And then to help on on this level. And and I've I've done some work on this in the past. Is I believe we need to be thinking more creatively about sort of levels of qualification, almost like in the video game style. So most of us get jobs that we're not qualified for, right? I mean, we step into a job and we have some of the qualifications, Mm. but there's so much we have to learn on the job. And we're going to learn something new all the time because the technology is changing, the customer is changing, the world is changing, the product line, whatever it might be. I mean, everything is changing. And so we're in this constant flux of of learning. And, um, And so... I would say that that reimagining the way we think about training um, and thinking about it more in terms of layered and levels of training can be quite helpful. So what about this company I, I give you an example of uh, that with a thousand vacancies? Maybe they come up with instead of saying bachelor's degree required, they have a more baseline set of skills and abilities. And we do what's called progressive credentialing. Actually, the medical field uh, has done this in the past where you take medical interns that come in and they can demonstrate their qualifications to, to conduct certain procedures and practices by passing an assessment, but they just can't do everything yet. And the more time they spend, the more qualified they get for new and more and additional tasks and, and abilities. And then eventually they maybe get some overall credential that gives them full access to the, the breadth of, you know, of tasks that are needed um, at that place of, of work. Um, and so that kind of progressive credentialing can be an incredible solution. So if, I think we have our, our order mixed up here in, in terms of, of credentials. Like it's so many people think you go to college, you get your degree, and then you get your job. Well, why not get a job, uh, get increasing qualifications along the way? Maybe you get a degree, and then you get more qualifications, and then you get new titles and renew responsibilities, right? It can, be a, it, it can be much more fluid than the way we think about it. And there are plenty of examples in the workplace where that happens. I think there's a ton of opportunity and need for the entrepreneurs and people working in workforce development to help companies think through this and to provide some really valuable and flexible products and services that could accommodate these these types of models. Mm -hmm. Well, I especially like that first point um, that you made because I don't think it gets made very often, which is that, you know, maybe part of the um, skills gap and the workforce development issue is a little around, um, it's on the companies. And so I think that's an interesting point to just be thinking through, as you were saying at the outset of our interview around the credentials and what's really necessary, what skills are really needed. So that's great. Well, I will say, you know, I said I wanted to go, I, I could go so many different directions. The other strand that I debated on going, and I won't go into as much depth on is just that I think it's valuable for us to define skills gap more broadly and not just thinking about discrete skills for a specific job or task. And I'm not just talking the liberal arts college professor argument that the liberal arts are these transferable skills everywhere and all, but but I am saying that uh, skills transcend just a given job. And uh, this conversation, I believe, really it benefits. If it's going to be a humane one, I've used that word a few times, then it should take into account the needs and goals and aspirations of the individual as well. And and an individual's life is greater than the, the you know the the quantity of uh, the, the 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 sum of tasks that they accomplish during their work hours. Mm-hmm. That they have family and community engagement and and all of those things actually impact the quality of their work as well in the workplace. Um, and so when we talk about the skills gap 
I mean, there's digital literacy, there, you know, people's ability to consume and make sense of knowledge and information from diverse sources today. Um, that impacts everything from their, the, how they parent to decisions they make in their home, to how they vote, to how they get things done on the job. So some of these these skills gaps that we're talking about have far-reaching implications. Yeah, that gets back to, again, one of your opening comments where you sort of said, you know, you feel like uh, education has these really broad implications for society, and that's clearly an example of it there. So we'll switch over and do, um, and just kind of big picture, you know, not necessarily might be related to something we've already talked about, might not be, but I would be interested in your thoughts on, you know, kind of in terms of what's going on in learning these days, you know, what, what do you find most exciting? Yeah, that's my problem is I find too many things exciting and then I, I don't get, get any work done. Um, so, right? You, you go a little bit, an inch deep in, in everything. Um, so, you know, there are, are there are some things that are exciting to me, but I've chosen not to dive into them myself. Like, I'm really excited to watch from the sidelines and see where it goes. Um, and there are other things that I'm so excited about that I would like to devote the next you know, 10 years of my life to figuring out. Um, and, and so on the first category, the things that I'm excited about, but right now I'm kind of watching from the sidelines a little bit more. I mean, I'm a little bit into the game, but not, not much is I'm intrigued by where, um, augmented virtual and mixed reality is going to take us in terms of creating really rich, engaging and interesting learning experiences and environments and how it could, I mean, and really in formal, concrete kinds of training scenarios, because most of the money in the past for VR and AR has been going into like gaming type context, right? That's where people are investing. But it's in the last couple of years, we've started to see the venture capital and new startups and people who are focusing their energy and their knowledge of these technologies on training and educational solutions. Um, and so this is this is a really exciting time. I'm excited to watch it. I go back and forth on how involved I want to get with it. Um, but uh, but that's one that that I think is is definitely pretty cool, pretty fun to watch. Um, I am intrigued by where we're going with uh, micro credentials, as we talked about, but we already talked about that one a bit, so i'll I'll skip that. Um, and I would say though that that more exciting than anything else for me right now, um, has to do with a lot of the growing research around positive psychology, mm. right? I mean, I mean, this is this is a, a revolution in the way that we've we've uh, thought about human growth and learning and development in many ways. With Martin Seligman and others leading the way and saying, "Hey, maybe in psychology, instead of just starting by looking at people who have serious and significant challenges and neuroses and psychoses, maybe we should actually look at optimal performance and people who experience significant types of well-being, and we should study them and and, and learn." And uh, and so I am so excited and intrigued by some of the research happening and, and its implications for training and for education. So, for example, my newest thing, and this hardly anyone has seen me write anything about it. I may have a book coming out on it eventually. We'll see how much I learn along the way. But there's a there are a growing number of researchers who are studying the psychology of wonder and awe. Mm. Right. And like the idea of when you experience a moment of awe in, in nature or something like that, or um, a physical feat that just your jaw drops 
and you have this right. It's, it's hard to even explain, but it's it's a clear emotion that we all know and we can resonate with because we've we've experienced it at some point. There's research showing some incredible things that happen that people who experience awe more frequently tend to be more humble. Hmm. They can they there's an uh, the ability uh, that that people experience this kind of wonder and awe. They feel a more openness to people who are different from them, and they're a little more generous and kind toward one another. There's some research to indicate that when you experience wonder and awe, it prompts wonder, as in like asking more questions and wanting to know more. That when you experience wonder and awe, there's one study to indicate that people are more have greater attention to details and nuance than before they experienced it. And that's incredible stuff. But you go to the instructional, the world of instructional design. I mean, how many instructional designers and trainers out there are saying, how can I conjure wonder and awe? I mean, right? It's not even the way we're thinking. <laughs> yeah. So I'm intrigued about positive psychology and how we can begin to take some of these insights and use them to design rich, engaging learning experiences. You know, the whole like PERMA model, positive emotion or positive emotion engagement, positive relationships, meaning a sense of accomplishment, like those big five that lead to well-being in life, as Seligman and others talk about. Like, um, thinking about how that can shape education and training and learning and maybe even work. Um, that's super exciting. Yeah. I hear the excitement in your voice. You got, you got me excited. So that's, that's great. Um, and, and so now the next to last question, um, and this is one that we ask everyone who comes on the leading learning podcast. And so, you know, we're, we're focused in that lifelong learning space. And so you know, we're sort of saying after you left uh, your your formal, um, uh, you know, university learning, you know, what's been one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved with? Yeah, um, that's it's such a great question. Uh, it's just so hard for me to answer. <laughs> because you've had so many great experiences. <laughs> I, I have. I have the curse of curiosity. Um, I, I don't know what it is about me and why, if it's... Uh, if if it's more in the positive psychology of thing side of things, or it's a genuine psychosis, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I could seriously be curious about telephones, you know, the history of the telephone or something. Like, just pick a topic and and I can start to ask questions and and dive in and and explore it and and get curious about it. But with that said, I will say there there are a few things, and and this one was was a semester-long learning experience that was the most incredible. I'll say two things. One, I just came back from an event um, a month or two ago called Hailstorm, and it's a group of of people in higher ed, uh, and it's kind of an invitation-only type of event, um, and a small group that gathers and talks about issues around innovation and disruption in higher ed. And uh, it, part of it was the fact that it's this small invitation only group. So you feel like you're part of something special, but what happened there and the way we interacted and the conversations we had, they were, they were incredible. So that's one, that was actually one of the coolest experiences I've had in, in the in recent past. But the, the, the biggest one for me was I went on sabbatical this last uh, year for a semester and I had a fellowship at Wesleyan University. It's kind of a you know, a top 10 liberal arts school in the nation, one of the top, um, out in Middletown, Connecticut. And I, I, had a, I was fortunate enough to be granted the Jonathan D. Harbor Fellowship in Education and Entrepreneurship. So that for the semester, I taught one class, a social entrepreneurship and education class, where I took the students through some key themes and ideas, and then they had to do kind of a shark-like, shark tank-like pitch of a um, – 
educational entrepreneurship um, proposal, and um, and we brought in some re- you know, a representative from Yale Center for Entrepreneurship and some other places where they had to pitch in front of an impressive group of people. Um, and and so the experience of designing that course and learning with the students was fun, but that was only a piece of the learning experience because now I'm in Middletown, Connecticut, this Midwest guy. I brought my whole family out, homeschooling our children for the semester. We turned the entire Northeast into our classroom, traveling all the way up into Maine, hiking up in Maine at, near Acadia uh, National Park, and all the way down to like Williamsburg, Virginia, and in, in between New York City, D.C., Boston. We did like 30-something road trips, uh, day trips and overnight trips in one semester. And it was an incredible time for family, for learning, for new experiences, plenty of wonder and all. And then on the way back, we topped it off by driving and seeing Niagara Falls and driving um, north through Canada and back down through the northern part of Wisconsin and and down back home in in Milwaukee, where I'm from. Um, And and I also wrote a couple of books while uh, that semester. So I was learning and and I did tons of interviews of scholars out east and colleagues at MIT and Harvard and other places who I'd never had a chance to chat with before um, and and interviewing other people through my podcast. So you put all that together as one collective learning experience, and, and that was definitely one to remember. Wow. It sounds like it. So just the, the final question, which is if listeners want to know more about your work and follow along, where should they go? Um, well, just come over here in Wisconsin and <laughs> go to a coffee shop and chat. No, seriously, actually, if anyone's in the area or they ever are, reach out to me. I love to connect with people. I might uh, have to turn my recorder on and interview you, though, because I, I've done thousands of interviews. Like I, I love learning by interviewing people and talking to people. Um, so what you're doing with me, I, this is so much fun. I could do that for a living if, if, uh, if I could. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, so... So reach out to me, seriously, but my blog is etale, E-T-A-L-E dot org. I write about all sorts of random stuff. Um, I have a podcast called The Moonshot EDU Show, so just moonshotedu.com. Those are probably the best. On Twitter, you can find me. It's just uh, Bernard Bull, B-E-R-N-A-R-D Bull, B-U-L-L. Um, so I'd love to connect with people on Twitter. I'm still kind of old school. Yep. I'm a Twitter guy, but I have a presence on Instagram and those other places. I'm just still learning how to communicate, uh, in those. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bernard. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. That wraps up our interview with Bernard Bull. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 137. And this will include access to Bernard's piece on how to predict educational trends. While you're there at the show notes, you're also going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you'd take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and reviews, but more importantly, those reviews and ratings play a role in helping the podcast pop up when would-be listeners are searching for content on learning and leading. So consider leaving a rating and a review for the Leading Learning Podcast as one of your kind acts of the day. 
And we'd be grateful if you would take just a minute to visit our sponsor for this quarter, Review My LMS. Jeff and I put a lot of time and energy into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the key reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like Review My LMS. So please visit ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, contribute a review to help others find the right platform for their needs. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can easily send out a tweet simply by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, just pick the social network or other medium of your preference and spread the good word. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.